morning. Thank you. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. I will be sharing with you today from Romans 3, 21 through 26. Christ took our punishment. But now God has shown us the way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as His sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when we believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in past times. But he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Amen? Start yeah. preaching after that. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Holy cow. And all God's people said? Yeah. All right. Well, if you got your Bibles, please open them up to Romans 3. We're going to be uh, in verse 21 today, and we're going to be looking what she just read at 21 through 26. Uh, what we're trying to do for those of you that are new, um, oh, and by the way, if you need a Bible, we'd love to get you a Bible. You can raise your hand. Um, we're passionate about people having Bibles in their hands, and so if you need one, feel free to grab one and take it with you. Uh, it's our gift to you. But we've been teaching through the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, one of the things that we've really tried to establish, specifically what Paul is doing is, is undergirding all of this particular book is this idea of a God who's created this world that was absolutely right, okay? You're gonna hear this word a lot again, right. It was right, and I'll put this in quotes, even though I hate air quotes. But it was absolutely right from the standpoint in, in Genesis 1 and 2, we know that we learned that it was not only good, but on day six after he created humanity, his chief creation, he said it is very good. It is what we talked about. It's the rhythm. It's the melody of this world. It's the way in which God designed. And by the, way, by the way, we know this. And in the very end, when God has righted all things, we will return to that same rhythm and that same melody. And we will spend, those of us who by faith know him, an eternity with him forever enjoying him in that melody and in that rhythm. The problem for humanity, though, and this is very important with where we're going today, the problem with humanity is that Adam and Eve, along with all of humanity that's ever come before him, decided to remove God as the main character of this story, to insert ourselves into that main character. And from that particular point, the Bible talks about that everything began to decay itself into chaos. 
not just human, humanity, but the Bible talks about that every facet of creation was now marred, was torn apart, was twisted because humanity had the audacity to take God, who's the creator of all things, and relegate him to merely one that's underneath themselves, to which Paul in Romans 1.18 and following says this, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now with that, begin to now roll out this idea though within humanity, and then how do we write things? See, everybody, no matter who they are in all of humanity, is trying to write things. They know that something's not right. They know that this world needs to be adjusted or changed. But in an interesting way, whether it's the most vile people or the vile concepts of their time, like Nazism, that had the audacity, just the vulgarity, the wrongness to think that we can create a right society and culture by destroying another group of people or groups of others, or to the best the most maybe sincere, maybe Mahatma Gandhi, who chose to then, through peaceful resistance, stand up against others so that others might have freedom. All of those things were done in such a way that God never asked them to do. And so therefore, no matter how hard we try, we can't write the world. I can't write my community. I can't write my family. I can't write myself. And in fact, the harder that I try, this is the way I would put it, we just begin to dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. And this is the way that the book of Romans is going to put it, that sin begins to create or has created slavery. We're stuck. One of my favorite movies of all time, I don't know if you've ever seen it before, is Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Have you ever seen that one before? I, I'm not like encouraging you to go watch it, but it is thinking hilarious. But in this movie, he can't escape a day. Every day he goes to sleep and he wakes up the next day and it's the same day over and over and over again. And this is what humanity is facing. And so let me just kind of say it to those of you that are a little bit younger. We have like a Dr. Strange who created a time loop in which he got things over and over and over. But it's just this reality that humanity is in slavery. We're repeating the same things over and over and over again because we have not bent the knee to Jesus Christ acknowledging that the only way out of this time loop, the only way out of this is through the person of Jesus and nowhere else. Now what Paul is going to do though is he's going to lay out for us this idea and this is where Chris ended yes last week is that some people at the time thought, though, if the greatest system that there is is the system to which the Jewish people lived under, it was under the law, under the temple system, under everything that God had created, well, then surely then what we need to do is we need to stay underneath that old system, missing the fact that God was no longer working under that old system. He was working under something completely new because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. See, the thing about living under the law, and this is what Paul talks about. If you look up in verse 20, this idea that no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law is even in the best possible system. We're talking the system that was a theocracy, the very great God of the universe. Even under the best system, you could not be righted because we cannot be righted by a system. We cannot be righted by a government. 
We cannot be righted by a religion. We cannot be righted by a philosophy. We cannot even be righted by our own self-will. Paul wants us to understand that the only way in which this world is going to be righted is someone has to come along that's going to do the work, and that person is Jesus. He's saying to them, there's only one way. Now, the hard part is, is we can begin to believe that we can somehow solve our world's problems. Right now, I don't know if you knew this, but it's starting to approach over 33% of people underneath the age of 35 think that socialism is going to cure our country. I'm just saying. Anybody, though, that knows anything about history understands that socialism has a gigantic flaw within it. The flaw of socialism, as good as it might sound, is that it assumes that people are generally good. The problem is, Paul has been spending all this time in Romans 1.18 through 3.20 to convince us there is none righteous, no, not one. Government's not going to solve our problem. Religion is not going to solve our problem. Philosophy is not going to solve our problem. We, by our own self-will, are not going to solve our problem. Something greater has to come along. Now, I know in the back of people's heads as they're reading, and they're thinking, then what? If the best system ever, the system that was created by God, which, which no doubt, it was a wonderful system. People that say the law wasn't good are lying to themselves. Man, the law told us the character of God. In this particular context specifically, the righteousness of God. It taught us also about God's intent and heart for humanity and how they're called to live together. Even in this context, it then also reveals to us that we are sinners, but that yet God, what we learned last week from Chris is, is that God, God intends to change the very thing that has to be changed within us, which is our hearts. The reason that no system works, the reason that I don't even care, I love the country we live in, I love the fact that we've got three different branches of government because we assume that people are evil, by the way. That's a good part of our government. But even the best system without a changed heart will never right this world. This is what Paul is trying to show the people in Rome. We have to have something big happen to us, and that's why when we get to Romans 3, 21 through 24, and we're going to look at it in the Net Bible today because I think that's kind of the best translation that's out there, Paul says this statement, and I love it, but now. Oh, gosh. I can just imagine people sitting there going, well, what are we going to do? Everything's falling apart then. There's no hope. If there's not hope in the greatest system that God's ever created, a theocracy underneath God and the people of Israel and observing the law and temple worship, then what is the hope? And Paul says to them this powerful and wonderful statement, but now. Now for the person that was sitting there, they would have been going, what? What is it? What's the now? What is it that Paul's going to tell us? Because if we're trapped in sin, if everyone is in this slave market of sin, stuck in this never-ending time loop, the eternal groundhog day, living in such a way that the only thing that is owed us, according to what Paul is saying in Romans 1.18 and following, is the wrath of God, then what in the world are we supposed to do? And he says, but now. 
But now, and he includes into this now, he says this idea, there is this righteousness of God. Now, the term righteousness of God gets used a lot in different ways, but let me just say it to you this way, and I'm going to go back to where I was a few weeks ago. Whenever we talk about the term righteousness, we're going to just use this word right, the rightness of God. Now, what we mean by that is, is that God is by character, he is by attribute, he is in and of himself the only right one in all of creation. There is nothing else right. Only God is right. He is right in both who he is and he is right in his actions that he carries out in this particular world. There is nothing, there is zero flaws in our God. He is perfect. But not only is he perfect by who he is, but in his actions then, he is seeking to bring to bear his righteousness. And we learn in Romans 1.18, kind of at the very beginning, is that humanity is not right. And humanity that remains in a not right state, has the only thing that they're going to ever face is the wrath of God. And Paul puts it down in some ways. It's the future wrath of God that is carried out in what sometimes we call hell, which is the lake of fire or eternal damnation and separation from God. Or even I would say this, the wrath of God can also express itself in this world that we live in. In some ways, we make our own hell. It is merely the foretaste of everything that's about ready to come. Or, Paul now lists out the but now, this righteousness of God means that God has an intent to liberate. He has an intent to, intent to save. He has an intent to do a work of redemption within this world. And his righteousness can also come on display in such a way that this right God is seeking to save not only humanity, but here's the greatest thing in the world. When you read the Bible, he is going to save everything. He's going to save humanity. He's going to save, we find out, animals where a lion is going to lay down with a lamb. Are you kidding me? He's going to save the world where every facet of what this world has become because of the decay of the fallenness of humanity. God is going to fix everything. And let me just put it to you this way. Our God also can't be stopped. When we say he's right, we're saying our God can't be stopped. What he sets out to do, he is going to do. And even though God, in setting out and weaving everything and starting it in Genesis 2, watching it decay in Genesis 3, even with grabbing a group of people in and through the people of Abraham and placing his blessing upon them, it seems like how in the world is this ever going to work? But our God is weaving and coordinating and orchestrating all of history together where I can promise you, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, I can tell you this as a fact and a certainty Jesus Christ will return one day and all things will be set right forever. That's how certain this is. Now this righteousness of God, though, it's even bigger than that. Let me kind of take it a little bit step further. It's not now just only that he's going to bring about this idea of where he's going to set all things right. But because it is something that only God has, it means that it's something that he is going to now give as a gift. You're going to learn this as we begin to walk through this particular passage. He's going to give it as a gift because humanity will never seek it out. 
In fact, this is what Paul was getting to in Romans 3, 9 through 20, is that there are none who knows God, and there's none who seeks what? After him. Humanity will never in and of themselves go after God, and so therefore, our God comes after us. It's the story of the prodigal that goes off and finds all, but where's the father sitting there the whole time, longing and wooing and drawing humanity that are his back to himself. It is a God, though, that looks down, and he has to be just. He can't just shuck and jive with sin. He can't wink at it and pretend like it's there. When we say our God is right and righteous, what that means is, is that our God has to mete out wrath upon sin because you know this. If evil ever is gotten away with at the end of it, then our God is not righteous, but our God is righteous and he's going to handle evil. So in the back of our heads then, we have to ask the question, how in the world is he going to solve this problem? How can he be right in dealing with sin, but also how can he now do what he said he's going to do in drawing people to himself? How in the world can he do this? And let me just say this. You might be somebody that maybe you're agnostic or atheist and you're just like, I don't even care about this because as far as I'm concerned, the world just kind of got spun into existence and it just kind of happened here. Let me just tell you this. First of all, that is naive to even think that. But second of all, then probably anything I'm about ready to say won't make sense to you. But there are some that say, well, maybe there's multiple ways to God. Maybe within it, you know, Islam has a little bit of a way to God. And maybe within it, Buddhism has a little bit of a way to God. And, and Mormonism has a little bit of a way to God. The problem, though, that he's going to get in there is there is only one way. And I know we live within a culture that seems so like dogmatic on being pluralistic in all kinds of ways to God. But Jesus Christ, even when he was on this earth, was saying to them, there is only one way to solve this problem. There is no other way but through Jesus. Period. That's why at the end of it, we're not just trying to make the world a better place. We're not just trying to keep it a little greener. We're not just trying somehow to give people pillows on their way to hell. We understand that at the end of the day, the greatest thing that this church who's been granted the gift of Jesus can give our world is not all those other things, but the greatest thing that we can grant to our world is to call them by faith to follow Jesus, to come and trust him, to surrender, bend their knee to him, and acknowledge him as the rightful Lord that he is. This world will never, ever, ever be fixed apart from bending the knee to King Jesus, period. And the greatest news in the world is that he's provided the way to be able to come to the Father. Now watch this. The first thing he says in here is that this way in which now the world is righted is apart from the law, that's how it's been disclosed. Now why in the world does Paul have to say the way that this now gets righted is apart from the law? Well, he's going to get in there and help us to understand that God's new word, the way that he's now given us a fresh word, is that the way that he's going to accomplish things is to unleash it apart from the law. Otherwise, the only people that would ever get in are those people in the law. So therefore, the only ones that could ever get in are the Jews. But we've learned in verse 20, it wouldn't do them any good anyway. But the Bible has been speaking for years and years and years. Look at that. It is attested by the law and the prophets. What does that mean? 
The Bible has been saying over and over and over again through retrospect that there's a God and there's this promise of old. There's an unfolding plan that's going to find its fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus. And all of history was longing and looking forward to that day in which King Jesus would come and right all wrongs and begin to draw all people to himself. And Paul is now looking at all of them and saying, oh, by the way, that time has come. He wanted them to know that the old has taken this place in which there's this new kind of unforeseen but foretold shape in which Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Behold now, there's a new creation and old has passed away and behold, all things are being made new. But the way, chapter 5, verse 21, that it's happening is through the righteousness of God. God's doing a work. See, I think sometimes we as the church forget that. God's working. It's crazy to think, but 2,000 years ago, after the gospel came to life in Jerusalem, do you understand the gospel has now almost spread to every corner of the world? It has spread through not only the Middle East, but it's gone down into Africa, it's gone into Europe, it's gone into Asia. It's even some way, some unknown way, crosses an entire ocean, comes to the United States, goes down into South America, even makes it to a God-forsaken place like Australia. If you're from Australia, please forgive me, but I've been there. God is saying, I'm doing something. In fact, the whole idea is, is that every aspect of the Old Testament that's teaching us about God is foretelling about this one who would come one day that began in Genesis 3.15 in the promise that a seed would come along one day and be the serpent crusher. And in crushing the serpent now, he would begin to free captives and redeem humanity. But it had to be apart from the law. But not only was it apart from the law, look at this. That on one case, it's been disclosed not by the law, but here it is. Here's our key to the text. But it, the righteousness of God was disclosed, look at this, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So now all of a sudden, writing this world does not come through a religious system. Writing this world does not come then through a governmental system. Writing this world does not come through a philosophical system. Writing this world does not come through the self-will of humanity. Writing this world or the righteousness of God displayed came through one person, Jesus. And not only one person, but how he came, and especially when we understand this from a Philippians 2.8 standpoint, he was Israel's Messiah who became obedient to death, even death on the cross, is that when Jesus Christ died on that cross, nothing was ever going to be the same. Now, there's all kinds of realities that happened in that moment that as he hung on that cross. The wrath of God that was due to humanity, he poured out upon his son. So therefore, all those who now come, look at that next part, who come to believe or come to have faith in him will no longer have to experience that wrath of God. The sin that was, that was nailed to the tree, Paul says in Colossians 2, is now never to ever come back up against us in any kind of a way. We are wholly forgiven if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Death was nailed to that tree. Satan was nailed to that tree. In other words, in that one moment, even though the world didn't know it, the world would never be the same. It is absolutely crazy to think about, but what Paul's saying is, is how ridiculous it is to think 
that government or philosophy or religion can save us. Are you kidding me? Government and religion cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can. In fact, I, I've been sitting around so often lately, and I'm, I'm looking at the church. Let me just say this. I'm sick of us whining and crying about the hard world that we live in. I saw it in myself. We, we had a slab leak in my house, right? And it's a few weeks gone, and we decided we're going to do some work on it. We have such first world problems. My kids are like, oh, we have to walk on concrete. I'm like, it could be worse. I could put you outside. You know, I'm just like, what in the world? We're missing it. I don't care who our president is. I don't care who our Congress is. I don't care who our Supreme Court is, who our governor is, who our state legislature is. I don't care who our mayor is or our city council is. They have nothing that they can do whatsoever to thwart the will and the plan of God because it has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that when Jesus Christ died and rose again, nothing was ever going to be the same again. We have to quit worrying about all those things. Now, now vote, please vote. Get involved. I want us to be involved. There's a place for that. But if anybody should not be afraid of this world, it's us. King Jesus won. He defeated everything. There is now nothing that stands in the way of King Jesus. He is enthroned in the right hand of the Father. There is nothing that stands against him whatsoever, nothing. And now all of us who are in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us, one day, Romans 8, neither height nor depth nor any other living thing can separate us from him. Christians in this room, buck up. He wins. But our world needs to hear that. I sat down across from a guy this week, man, and we were just talking life, and it was, it was a cool talk. Both of us had our power out, and so we were sitting over here in this Wendy's over here, mulling over the tragedy of not having electricity in our home, right? <laughs> Pretty soon we got started on politics, and if you ever want to know, politics is always an interesting way to start a conversation, isn't it? And he said, yeah, he goes, I'm just really hoping that Trump gets, uh, gets impeached. And I go, oh, really? I go, why do you want to have Trump impeached? And he goes, oh, because if we can just get rid of Trump, don't you just think our nation will be better? And I said, no. He goes, so you think Trump is going to make our nation better? I go, no. <laughs> he goes, wait, wait a second, what are you talking about? I go, what I'm talking about is, is Trump or no Trump is not going to fix anything. The only cure to our society, the only cure to the ills of what's going on is a heart change. And the only way that things are ever going to get changed is through the person of Jesus. Now, he thought I was a nut, and that's all right. But this is what he's talking about. And I love this. This message isn't just for anybody. It's for, look at that word, all. In Greek, it's put together in this way that it literally means for all. That this message is for all humanity, Jew and Gentile. And that's why he says later, there's no distinction. This message can change the life of Jewish people. This message can change the life of Gentiles. This message can change the life of African Americans and Anglo Americans and Latino Americans. This message can change the life of men and women. It can change the life of even, and I don't even know all the different pronouns that go with different genders in this world, but it can change that. It is for 
Everyone, and here's the qualifier, who what? Believe. Exclusive again. There is only one way that anyone can ever now be righted and can join Jesus in the writing of this world, and that is we must believe. What is belief? Belief is not merely a mental ascent. I think there's a lot of people that are going to stand before Jesus one day, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, because they merely just assented to the reality of who he is. When we talk about what it means to believe or to have faith, it is those people that have placed their trust wholeheartedly in Jesus. Now get it. Man, when I first came to know Jesus, I didn't understand anywhere near what it meant to put my life wholly and trustworthily into the hands of Jesus. But oh my gosh, at the time, what I understood, I did. I remember just that moment of surrender. I remember that moment of going, this life is no longer about me. This life is about Jesus Christ. And the message that the church must continue to proclaim and keep proclaiming is that salvation is by Christ alone. Salvation is in faith alone. There is no other way to the Father but through Him. Church, not only are we on the right side of history, we have the greatest message ever. You ever thought about that? I was thinking about it the other day. What in the world happened on March 26th, when I finally confessed Jesus to be the Lord that he was and believed in that amazing message, Todd got all kinds of new. Did you know I used to be 100% shy? I used to. I took a speech class in which I literally started throwing up. The thought of speaking in front of people absolutely caused me to vomit. The last time I did drugs was after March 26, 1993. Am I perfect? Close. No, I'm really not. That's my wife. <laughs> but not only on a personal level, let me stretch it out, because it's not that it's less than that. Paul is giving something that's so much grander and so much bigger. He is talking about a change that changes everything. This message of the kingship of Jesus, of him being Lord and creator of all things and calling the world to bend the knee, we should not be ashamed of it in the least. Instead, we should proclaim to the world, whether it's in English or Spanish or whatever language it is, King Jesus reigns and it is worth it to bend your knee to him by faith. Come to know Jesus. On one level... You'd be like, okay, that's enough. I'm good. But Paul keeps going. I love this. I seriously could stop right now and go, okay, cool. That's all I need to know. But then what does Paul do? He says they are righted. Look at verse 24. They are righted freely, meaning God doesn't have to do it in the least, by his grace, meaning he gives those lowly sinners, you and me that are enslaved, that are caught in the never-ending perpetual time loop of sinfulness, sitting there decaying in our sinfulness, he grants it to us out of the greatness and the goodness of his heart. And in giving it to us now, the idea is, is he is a great Good, giving God, calling us now to trust him, to surrender, and to make our allegiance to him. But look at this. It's through redemption. What's redemption? 
Well, if you remember right, what I said about at the very beginning is that mankind is caught up into a perpetual time loop, a groundhog day. This thing that we're caught up into is sin, and the way that we talked about sin, especially in the Bible, is the only outcome at the end of sin is going to be death. Everything in all time is moving that way for those that have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, this slavery that we're in, God in some way has to come in and rescue us out of that slavery and make us our very own. And this is exactly what this word redemption means. It literally means that all those who are now stuck in this slavery, he is now righted freely by his grace. And he hasn't just now somehow set them free from the standpoint of they're no longer guilty. The idea is, is that they are fully righted and they're not just let off. By the time we get to Romans 8, this full idea of redemption is that now all of us in here that call Jesus Christ Lord, we are now sons and daughters of the King Most High. We are no longer slaves. In fact, now we get to be fully ingrained in and called children of God. Shush. And listen to me, church. Don't sell your birthright. We are sons and daughters of the king. Our daddy is the one that created the entire universe. And we grovel and cry because of the government we're under. Let me just say this. Our dad as king is so high, he takes leaders in and he also takes them out. Our king reigns. Redemption is the full orbed reality that's not just redemption like our world talks about, a nice story like Tiger Woods and he got redemption in winning a master's. When we talk redemption within this, is this something we didn't deserve? Is this something that we didn't earn? There was nothing in and of ourselves that deserved it, but yet God in his grace bought us out of that slave market of sin, that perpetual time loop, that never-ending groundhog's day of sinfulness that was only ever going to result in death. And he makes us his very own and is not ashamed now that we get to the point in Romans 8 where we get to call him daddy. But still in the back of our heads, we're asking, but how? See, because there's a question that still lingers with us. Does God then just kind of forget about the sin that he's taught that's happened here? Does God no longer kind of care about sin once we're kind of his? He just kind of pretends like we've never committed it. There must be something bigger here that we're not understanding. And I love what he does in this next part in verse 25. He's now going to tell us how he doesn't shuck and jive with sin. He doesn't pretend like it's not there. Instead, this death of Jesus did something powerful. This work of Jesus is that now God publicly looked at this, displayed him at his death. Literally, the word there is through his blood as the mercy seat accessible through faith. Now, there's four things that just let me let me help you to understand this that you can see when later on in verse 26 paul says that god is just or he is right and the justifier of all god can't shuck and jive with sin sin has to be dealt with something has to take place with sin or in other words our god is not righteous he is not right he is not just so what does he do well, the first part when you look down in this text that he's kind of worked in and through redemption, he now shifts the focus, and you can just see this, from slavery or a slave market of sin, 
And he shifts it now to language of temple and sacrifice. He's now beginning to show us what he means that the prophets and the, and the, and the, and the law were speaking of this. All throughout the Old Testament, whether we're talking in the temple or whether we're talking in the tabernacle, all of these different things were types. They were, they were telling us that something greater was coming along. And when Jesus Christ came along, look at this, he gets publicly displayed, or your text might say, he gets put forth in the way that the priest would put forth like the, the, the goat on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 or the shoe bread in Leviticus, 20, Leviticus 24. In other words, God took Jesus in front of all the world, both Jew and Gentile, and he's thrust him out there, and he was now going to be able to be seen in front of all that God was going to deal with sin, his wrath on top of Jesus. But how was he going to do it? Well, the second word that he gets there is this word mercy seat. The place of mercy, if you know anything about the Old Testament, was, was this place that had carved angels and between them, God would meet his people in grace and forgiveness. What this means is, is no longer do we go to a temple or a tabernacle to meet God. That blood that we're going to talk about here in just a second didn't get sprinkled on anything. That blood, from a symbolic standpoint, everything that was moving this way got shed. And now the place that we meet God is not around an altar. It's not around an ark. It's not between two cherubim that have their wings stretched out over it. The place that humanity finally can meet God is in Jesus. That's where it happens. See, in order to be changed, in order to be transformed, in order to be made new, humanity must be able to be drawn near to God. But in sinfulness, humanity can never go near him because in going near him, we would be destroyed. But yet in the work of Jesus, God, in his goodness, poured out his wrath on Jesus and ended up totally now taking on that wrath. And those of us now that place our faith in him are placed into Jesus Christ and being placed now into Jesus Christ in a powerful, in a real way, we can be near the God of the universe to be transformed and made new. And he did it all through his death. He tells us a little bit more about it. He says that this was to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, God had been kind of, he says in there, overlooking sin previously committed, but that didn't mean God was shucking and jiving with sin. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards this day that when Jesus Christ came, all of sin was going to be carried out on him. He then even says in there, and because of all this, look down at verse 26. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Why? So that he could now be seen as right. God doesn't shuck and jive with sin. He deals with sin, and now he's also able to justify the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. No way. Our God is righteous and just and perfect, and holy. But let me make sure you get this last part. He is only accessible through faith. Only. Now, I don't know where everybody's at today. I don't have a clue. You might be somebody sitting here today going, yeah, Christianity's kind of stupid. Let me just tell you this. 
There is no other way to the writing of this world, and specifically, I know even individually, a lot of you are trying to figure out, how do I write my life? My life just feels like it's going off the rails, and I'm here to tell you that the only way to write your life is being accessible through faith in the person of Jesus Christ, and today is the day to bend your knee. Today is the day to trust him. Today is the day to quit being the chief of this story and to put God in his rightful place in your life and bend that knee to him. There is no way but through the work of Jesus Christ. And you can battle and strain all you want, but you will never be righted until Jesus writes you. I think even some of you, let's be honest, I think some of you might have been playing games with Jesus. You see him as just kind of this maybe get out of jail free card at the very end that when I stand before God, I've I've said the right words, but in the end, you don't really trust Jesus. You don't really, you've never really bent your knee before Jesus. You've never really seen him as the one that he is to be now totally worshiped as the true king. Today's the day to do that. And those of you two that I just spoke to, those two types of people understand this, that when we bend our knee and come to him in Jesus' finished work and his death, burial, and resurrection, the beauty of being in Christ is not only are you going to be made right, but God will look at you as fully right. In other words, you will be just as right as the day when finally you are righted in front of Jesus Christ because he will no longer see you as a slave, but he will see you as a son and a daughter. Bend the knee to the rest of us. That's our story. When's the last time you just smiled about this? When's the last time you just went, no way? Are you kidding me? Our God is the king of the universe who doesn't play with sin, but instead, sin was born by Jesus. The wrath of God came upon him, and now because of the work of Jesus and me being placed in Jesus, I am now viewed as a daughter or a son of the king? All God's people should say, amen. That wasn't good. I'm going to lie to you. All God's people should say, thank you. Not only that, but I'm going to bring Billy up. I preached way too long. I'm sorry. Gosh. Billy, can you come up? Because I don't want to play the guitar. I want our people to stay. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Anybody seen security? Yeah. I'd like all of you to stand up. If you'd like to talk to somebody about what it means to believe in Jesus or have faith in Jesus, I'll be over here. Last week, we talked about this idea of bending the knee. For some of you, you need to bend the knee today. But let me throw something different at you, a different practice. If last week was bending the knee, this week I'd like to talk to you about what the Bible talks about in raising hands. Now, for some of you, you're like, I don't raise no hands. Did you see my pit stains? You know, it's, don't worry about that. We'll get past that. The Bible actually commands, I don't know if you knew that, for people to raise their hands. Did you know that? That it's not actually something just, that, you know, crazy, I don't know, Pentecostals do, but actually God's people throughout time have been called to raise their hands. Now, I'm not saying if you don't raise your hands today, we're going to kick you out. We will next week, but not this week. No, we won't. We won't. But one of the ways sometimes we declare that God is who he is, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, is we raise our hands. 
I saw this the other day. I was, I was at a game, and, and you've ever noticed at games you kind of can't keep it inside? And I don't even like the Dodgers. I, I, I don't. Forgive me. Um, God saved me from them. But like we're sitting there at the game, the Dodgers were down, and all of a sudden they started to go on a roll, and they ended up winning the game. And I found myself like high-fiving and doing stuff like this. I'm like, yeah, like doing this. Why? Because it has to come out. I think we as Christians have spent so long keeping inside of us this transformative work of God, these affections, these things that God is doing within us. And I'm not talking just emotions. I'm talking these realities of being transformed and made new, that we stand there holding them back. And in some ways, some of you, we just need to go, yes, yes. So, good illustration. With this song, if you feel led, I'm going to invite you to raise your hands to the king, not just at the high moment of the song. You ever notice that too? People wait till the high moment and then they're like, oh yeah, now I raise my hand. I invite you, if you'd like to, to raise your hands. I invite you, if you'd like to, to bend your knee. But let's worship the God and Father who spun everything into existence. And even when humanity sinned, our God could not be stopped. And he promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send one of the seed of Eve, who we know to be Jesus. He defeated sin and Satan and death. And even when he left, he still left another, John says. He left another, the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to be the people that God intends us to be. And so in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, may you sing with your whole heart, with your whole body, with your whole mind, with your whole strength. And all God's people.